RX. I'm Kurt Anderson, and this is the Studio 360 Podcast. I'm Jocelyn Gonzalez from Studio 360. We're back with another edition of This Woman's Work, a series of stories from Classic Album Sundays and Studio 360. Classic Album Sundays is a program of community listening events founded by Colleen Cosmo Murphy, where fans listen to essential albums uninterrupted on state-of-the-art sound systems. For This Woman's Work, we're highlighting classic albums by female musicians, women who continue to influence the world of pop culture and inspire others. This time we're looking at a band who seems to have landed here from some groovy planet. Four decades ago, the B-52s arrived on the Athens, Georgia party scene with killer guitar riffs, their silly but eerie lyrics, and their sky-high beehive wigs. The two women in the band, Cindy Wilson and Kate Pearson, created some of the group's more surreal and beautiful vocal moments, while also co-writing the songs and playing keyboard, guitar, and percussion. In this episode of This Woman's Work, we'll look back on the B-52's first album, which was released this month in 1979. Here's Colleen. Whenever I'm asked, what was your favorite gig? One that still springs to mind is a concert in December 1984 at an old theater called E.M. Lowe's in Worcester, Massachusetts. 2,000 oddballs, including myself, were singing at the top of our lungs and dancing footloose and fancy free, and an imitation of the band themselves, dressed from head to toe in our finest vintage gear. And when the bass line kicked in on this, their opening song that evening, and the memorable opener of their debut album from five years before, we all screamed in unison. The B-52's concert that I attended 35 years ago had a liberated and joyous atmosphere, an inclusively populated moon in the sky orbiting around the hilariously self-confessed tacky little dance band from Athens, Georgia. I was a teenager who didn't really fit in with the jocks and cheerleaders of my small town, but here at this B-52's concert, I totally fit in. It was also a huge inspiration to my 16-year-old self to see a band that prominently featured two women. The lineup at that concert featured the same band members found on that B-52's debut album, which was eponymously titled. The late Ricky Wilson on guitar, singer Fred Schneider, drummer Keith Strickland, and the beehived and gloriously attired singer-percussionist Cindy Wilson and singer-keyboardist Kate Pearson. This was a big deal for me. You have to remember that for the most part up to that time, with the behemoths, ABBA, and Fleetwood Mac as big exceptions, bands were usually all-girl groups or featured one woman, usually fronting the band as a singer. Despite their overall otherworldliness, the B-52s helped normalize mixed-gender musical acts. The B-52's debut album didn't sound like anything else when it was released in 1979. It was almost as if the Jetsons formed a band in which they transmitted the melodic hooks of the Twilight Zone theme 
underpinned by the propelling guitar-drum combo of 1960s surf music. But just as the band drew upon the past, they also had their gaze firmly set upon the future. You can hear how they knowingly drew from the minimalist and modern synth-pop sound of avant-garde groups like New York City duo Suicide, and Akron, Ohio's art rock anomaly, Devo. Are we not men? We are Devo. Are we not men? Their retro-futurist sound was augmented by nonsensical and seemingly ridiculous lyrics that were easy to remember and to sing along with. And equally important to their allure as their debut LP's sonic style, was the band's sartorial flair, which is gloriously on display on the album's cover. Set against a bright yellow background, the band posed in their kooky thrift store kitsch, inviting the listener to the party found in the album's grooves. After all, it was the mission to have a good time that ignited the B-52s. We were just a group of friends in Athens, sort of going to parties, crashing parties for free beer. Keyboardist Kate Pearson. One night, we just were hanging out together, and we went to a Chinese restaurant called Hunan's. We had a flaming volcano drink, which is a classic tiki drink. And then we said, okay, let's go to Owen's house to jam. And we went down to his basement, and there were all these instruments, because he was in a band called the Zambo Flirts. And Keith Strickland actually played drums with that band. Keith, Ricky, Cindy, and Fred, and I went just started playing instruments. Like there were bongos and some shakers and guitar, and we started jamming. We wrote this song called Killer Bees. We never finished that song, but that was the spark that made us realize, hey, you know, we could, maybe we'll get together again and write. And we kept getting together to jam. And so we had maybe six songs. We played this Valentine's Day party, and they had this little house. It's still there in Athens. It's still standing, amazingly, because it almost fell down that night we played. And not only did they rock the house, they also rocked a new look. This is a small town, so the Diana shop had these fun fur purses in the window. And Fred said, you gotta check it out. So I bought one for me and one for Cindy, and we turned them upside down. They were fun fur, but we made them into white afros. And we wore them on our heads, and, and we wore black. And we had like Barbie dolls hanging from the ceiling. It was a very punk scene. And when people danced, like the house shook, people had to hold the equipment onto the shelves because the whole place was literally rocking. If you like a very nice time, just give this number a call. From these obscure and humble beginnings grew an act that would eventually be, and is still referred to as, the greatest party band in the world. We'll return to our story in a moment, but first I want to remind you that you can keep up with what we're looking at and working on by following us on Twitter, at Studio360Show. And now, back to the B-52s.
Singer-songwriter Jake Shears of the disco rock band The Scissor Sisters was born the year before the B-52's debut album was even released. Yet the B-52's infectious spirit was just as significant to him as the turn of the millennium gay nightlife scene in New York City from which Shears' band sprang. I modeled Scissor Sisters off B-52s. We were both bands that came from just kind of not being bored, but just sort of enjoying our life and wanting to put on shows to entertain our friends, just to have a good time. It's sort of this amalgamation of their passions, um, their aesthetic, like all those things that has to do with their environment, with where they are in that moment, in Athens, going and playing those parties and hanging out with their friends. That's also what Scissors was doing and really wanting to show people a good time and to make them feel like they were part of something. After the formation of the B-52s, the band's birthplace became a hotbed of alternative acts like R.E.M. College radio sweetheart Matthew Sweet. Jeff Mangum's cult indie band Neutral Milk Hotel. What a beautiful face I have found in this place that is circling all around the sun. And more recently, dance acts like Danger Mouse. But when Kate Pearson and her fellow band members were getting their act together, Athens, Georgia couldn't provide the tipping point to get to the next level. Well, the music scene in Athens when we started the band was, there was no music scene. There really wasn't. Wax and Fax Record Shop in nearby Atlanta was opened by Danny Beard back in 1976 and is still open to this day. Danny was friends with the band back when they were trying to make their way and he wanted to help them out. He invited his friends to play at a party he put together at Emory University in Atlanta, where the Coca-Cola company is based. So uh, Danny really helped us out. He said, oh, I'm going to have a party for you at the Coke Room at uh, Emory University. He had a room called the Coke. So we played at the Coke Room, and then we just uh, we played at the first Atlanta Punk Festival. That was crazy. There was a band that, uh, what were they called? The Knobs, and one of them had a wooden leg, which he sawed off with a chainsaw during the performance. So if that's not punk, what is, right? One of the bands that was in the punk festival, the only Atlanta punk band, I think, called The Fans, Kevin Dunn from The Fans said, why don't you go to New York City and bring like a tape? And we're like, really? What a concept. So we had, uh, I had to work at the paper that night. I was a paste-up artist on the Athens Banner Herald, local paper. And so the rest of them went up. They were between jobs. They drove up to New York and took our demo tape to first... CBGB's and reject wasn't the greatest demo tape and we had like six songs but so they went to Max's Kansas City and the booker there was named Dear France and she loved it and she said come on up and play so the night we went up we drove up 
we just went right to the gig. And there were about 17 people there, but luckily a bunch of friends came up. We played and our friends danced and all of a sudden everyone in the audience, were not many people, but everyone started dancing. So we knew that something was happening. At this time, the B-52s were Kate, Fred Schneider, Keith Strickland, and Cindy, and her brother, Ricky Wilson, who sadly passed away in 1985 from AIDS. In their early days, Ricky was the ringleader. Ricky was kind of the planner. You know, he had a five-year plan. I don't know what that five-year plan was, except go back, write a song, rehearse, and go back to New York City and play that, you know, extra set. We were playing Max's and CBGB's. We started playing at Hurrah's, too. Then we were the first band to play at the Mud Club. Downtown Manhattan in the late 70s was a cross-pollination of artistic disciplines and sonic styles, and a place where experimental artists could take advantage of cheap rents. Venues also prospered. Clubs like the aforementioned Hurrah's, Mud Club, Danceteria, and the Paradise Garage rubbed shoulders with more rock-oriented venues like CBGB's and Max's Kansas City, which in turn fraternized with more avant-garde performance spaces like The Kitchen. So how did the B-52s fit into all of this? Amazingly, one thing about that new wave and punk scene is nobody fit in. I mean, can you think of more different bands, you know, than the Sex Pistols and Patti Smith and Talking Heads, how different and Blondie. Everyone had a different look, a different sound, a different vibe. The idea was creativity, let's be us. Island Records was founded by Chris Blackwell, Leslie Kong, and Graham Goodall in 1959 in Jamaica, and the label broke Jamaican-grown talents like Millie Small of My Boy Lollipop fame to Bob Marley. By the late 60s, Blackwell had relocated to the UK, where he widened his repertoire and signed acts like Traffic and King Crimson, and later Roxy Music and Grace Jones. But not only was he an enterprising and visionary A&R man, he was also a producer with his own studio. We were introduced to our manager by Tina and Chris from Talking Heads. And he signed us to Warner Brothers and Island Records. And after signing with Island Records, the B-52s were whisked away to Compass Point Studios, which was fabulously located in the Bahamas. It was just great. The studio was wonderful. And Chris Blackwell had the genius idea of, hey, we should just sound like we sound. Because we thought our sound would be augmented and we'd sound much fuller. And I played the bass parts on a keyboard. So we didn't really have a a regular string bass, and I played Farfisa organ that had a split keyboard, and the sound was, was sparse and eerie and punk. He said, everyone has to play just what they play on, you know, live. So I played the other guitar part on 52 Girls. He's like, oh, I thought Ricky can play it better, but Chris said, no, Kate, you play that. Cindy, play your bongos, and we all play what we played. We heard the record when it's finished and we're like, oh, we don't sound any better. 
but it was the best production idea ever is to have us, you know, sound like we sound. That was the unique part of us. So Chris was really, really smart to stay out of the way of our sound. The B-52s certainly had their own distinct sound that uniquely married 60s sci-fi kitsch with a modernist new wave art pop aesthetic. But would that quirky sound be acknowledged and endorsed by mainstream commercial radio? Uh, of course, we weren't all radio friendly at that time. Radio wasn't exactly jumping up and down to play all of it. But eventually, you know, wonderful college radio played everything and, and things sort of snowballed. The new afternoon show, Monday through Friday from 4 to 7.30 on WNYU. The power of college radio and making and breaking new talent cannot be overestimated. When we look back to the pre-internet days of the 1970s and 80s, college radio stations stepped up to become the vehicle through which new talent was broken. Where music obsessives had the chance to hear breaking bands and new sounds seemingly being beamed from outer space, like the B-52s and their debut album. Well, on college radio stations, and maybe even elementary schoolyards, as was the case for Scissor Sisters' Jake Shears. I do remember the first time I heard the B-52s. I actually, I was in the fourth grade, and I was out on the playground. We were on, like, lunch break, and my friend Ryan was telling me about this cassette tape that his brother had just gotten and was singing me Hot Lava. And so the first time I heard B-52s was actually through someone else's mouth. I think we thought it was so stupid in the best way. We just thought it was hilarious. Fred and I really are aficionados of, you know, science fiction, B-movies, and we try to put a lot of science facts in our songs. And I think that conglomeration of uh, sort of sci-fi references and B-movies and science and also the kind of promise when we were growing up that we would be, you know, having jetpacks by now and we would be flying to the moon and we would eat space sticks and wear silver, beautiful silver outfits. That really hasn't happened yet. But uh, we did go to the moon. We did go to the moon. We thought, well, there's a moon and it's in the sky. It's called the moon and everybody's there. It was just the funniest, funniest thing. Uranus, Neptune, uh, we just thought it was really, really funny. Jake Shears became a proper fanboy in his adolescence. Discovering them in that moment for me was just a seminal, you know, personal moment for me with music. You know, other than Bowie, discovering them was like finding out something about myself that I didn't know. There was something about Fred that really I, I connected with. There was something about Kate and Cindy that I really connected with. Uh, 
I would just have fantasies about like having lunch with them. <laughs> and like maybe if I wrote them a letter, they would like they would, you know, take me to dinner. <laughs> you know? I would cut out pictures of Cindy and Kate and and frame them and put them up on my desk. There was just something so silly about them. I loved how tacky they were. <laughs> And ridiculous. And I felt like, you know, no one else around me necessarily understood. Because at the time, I mean, I didn't know I was gay yet. I felt this inherent connection to this music. I would just listen to them and just and spin around the house when my parents, you know, left. It's just strange to have that connection and you don't even really know why yet. All three of the founding male members of the B-52s were or are gay, and Kate recently married her female partner. Even though their music doesn't necessarily address their sexual orientation, many feel they are LGBTQ pioneers. I think they're pioneers in a queer sense. I think their sensibility is queer. To me, queer is something that sort of goes beyond sexuality. It is a state of mind. It's not like they were sort of tied in with a specific sexuality. You did have Fred's very gay voice over the top of a lot of this stuff. Dined in the flock, ready to trot. A You had these two women, you had Cindy and Kate, that sort of, they were this amazing pair that dovetailed in and out of, of harmonies with each other and sang on top of each other and did these beautiful things with their voices. So there definitely was like, you know, some kind of queer magic going on there. I asked Jake, which was his favorite song from the B-52's 1979 debut album? I love Dances Mess Around just because it's kind of these, like, it's it's two different songs. It's, it's What's amazing when you listen to this record is that they were jamming. These songs came from jams. There is, like, an absolute freedom uh, that you hear while they're making these things. It's sort of letting your mind wander. It's letting yourself just kind of trip out. Save Amanda. I found this quote, actually, if I can, can I, can I read this quote that Kate says, you know, the inspiration for our vocal harmonies was sort of appellation. It's sort of at weird intervals and it almost has this appellation kind of feel. The harmonies were really spontaneous and the way we jammed, we would just get into a trance, almost like automatic writing. This collective unconscious would take over and sometimes we'd be singing all at once. We'd listen back to the tape and seek out the best parts and patch them together in a collage. That's my favorite part of of writing is just kind of getting lost in it. And you can hear in these songs, it is as if they're in a trance. When she is 
saying, why don't you dance with me? So we've all felt like that. There's a real kind of tangible pain there, which I love that it's in sort of the middle of this silly song with this really sort of silly statement that, yeah, you can you can sort of feel it. The B-52s already had two albums worth of material when they recorded their first LP at Compass Point Studios in the Bahamas. Many of them penned in the early days back in Athens when they weren't even sure if this band thing was going to work out. We all had little jobs. Cindy worked at the Whirly Q luncheonette counter, which was like the uh, five and dime luncheonette counter. And Keith and Ricky worked at the bus station because... Keith's parents managed, they ran the bus station. Fred worked at the, as a waiter at the health food restaurant. So we just started getting together at the house they had rented. I remember doing Rock Lobster there. I remember that Fred had this poem he had written and Ricky had this riff. And as Keith Strickland tells it, he walked in the room and Ricky was playing and Ricky looked up and said, oh, I've just written the stupidest guitar part you've ever heard. And it was dong, 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 na, 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 na. And Fred had this poem. So they put it together. Fred had all the, the lyrics and everything. And Ricky wrote the music, all the guitar parts, which was amazing because the guitar part had two sections. It was missing the middle strings, two. So there were four strings. So he played this part riff on the bottom two strings and then the other riff on the top strings. So it's almost like these two separate instruments that he was able to, to play. It was always amazed me how he did that. And then Cindy and I worked on the and all the, the sounds. You know, we had all the fish sounds and the background parts. So the song just came together. Somebody went under a dock. Rock Lobster is still one of the B-52's most beloved songs and one that the band still loves to play to this day. The B-52's continue to tour and record, still going strong 40 years after the release of their debut album. Today, you can hear their influence on acts like Peaches, The Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Slater Kinney, and of course, Scissor Sisters and Jake Shears. A friend of mine took me to go see the Bees' uh, 25th anniversary at Irving Plaza. It was just incredible. And getting to see that, you know, watching their freedom on stage. And their shows are a party, and they are a lot of fun. To get to meet them afterwards, I remember I went to the, the little after party. Like, if you would have told me when I was you know, 13 years old that I was, you know, going to be getting my picture taken with Cindy and Kate and Fred. Like, I just, I was in heaven. I think all these songs are so dear to so many people's hearts. And the vibe of these songs, I don't know if they'll ever be replicated. I mean, I think that there is a real lack of fun in contemporary music. (laughs) Like, I don't hear a lot of stuff that is, like, just stupid and fun. 
just for fun's sake. There's sort of a heaviness to contemporary music uh, right now. You know, I think that we go back to these songs. We we still go see B-52s live because it just makes it makes you feel good. Our story on the B-52's debut album was produced by Colleen Cosmo-Murphy and by me, Jocelyn Gonzalez. Special thanks to Jason Gambrell for engineering. The B-52s are currently on a U.S. tour to celebrate their 40th anniversary, and they show no signs of slowing down. For more classic albums, visit ClassicAlbumSundays.com. What are your favorite classic albums featuring female artists, and why? Tell us at incoming at studio360.org. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 wherever you get podcasts.